This episode of the Gospel Coalition podcast is sponsored by LifeWay, publisher of Jen Wilkins' newest Bible study, God of Deliverance, a study of Exodus 1 through 18. Throughout 10 sessions, Wilkins shows us that Israel's story is our story. The same God who delivered Israel also delivers all those he loves from slavery to sin and from service to the pharaohs of this world. Learn more at lifeway.com deliverance. This episode of TGC Podcast is sponsored by Acts 29 with an invitation to their 2024 Next Conference happening April 15th through the 17th in Dallas, Texas. You don't want to miss this great lineup of speakers, including Sam Albury, Matt Chandler, Brian Loritz, John Piper, and more. The Next Conference will equip and encourage church planters and church leaders of all types for church ministry. To learn more and register for Next, visit acts29.com slash next. TGC podcast listeners will receive a special discount of $20 off registration prices by using the code TGC. Again, visit acts29.com slash next. That's acts29.com slash next. Hi there. This is Sarah Zylstra, Senior Writer for the Gospel Coalition. My job is to find and report on places where God's Spirit is at work in the world. So I hear a lot of stories about Christians who are living sacrificial, joyful, God-glorifying lives, and I'm excited to share this one about Alex Harris with you. It's fair to say we're coming out of a hard year. Everything we've done for the past 12 months has taken more effort and resulted in less productivity. It's harder for teachers and pastors to communicate online, and it's less effective for people to listen and learn that way. It's more difficult to look after an elderly loved one when you can't visit them, and they feel less cared for. It's more challenging to breathe and speak through a mask than without one. We've expended a lot more energy doing things that were normally nearly effortless, going to the grocery store, spending time with friends, figuring out how to exercise. Perhaps we would have been better prepared if we'd all read a book Alex Harris wrote with his brother Brett a dozen years ago called Do Hard Things. In it, Alex and Brett proposed that doing hard things prepares you to do even harder things. You should get up early, they said. Step out of your comfort zone. Do more than what's required. Find a cause. Be better than your culture expects. That way, when a pandemic sweeps in, or your brother deconstructs his faith, or your wife gets sick, you won't collapse. Your foundation, built on one faithful decision after another, will be sturdy. Your muscles of obedience to the Lord, strengthened by constant use, will be able to handle the load. This is the theme of Alex Harris's life. I met him and Brett six years ago when I wrote their story for the Gospel Coalition. When my editor Colin Hansen and I wrote our new book, Gospelbound, Resolute Hope in an Anxious Age, we filled it with stories, and Alex and Brett were an obvious inclusion. Their lives have been an exceptional example of Christians who live bound to the gospel, trusting in Jesus as they do hard things. After they finished high school at age 16, Alex and Brett clerked with the Alabama Supreme Court and organized a statewide grassroots political campaign. Then they started a blog, coined the revolution movement against low expectations, wrote their book, Do Hard Things, and spoke at conferences. 
And that was all before they turned 20. So I grew up about 15 miles outside of Portland, Oregon. And we lived on nine acres of heavily wooded land surrounded by many more acres of forest. And so uh, me and my six siblings, we spent a lot of time outside exploring the woods, using our imaginations, uh, rescuing and trying to tend to injured wild animals. And then the rest of the time we were inside uh, reading books, putting on skits and making home movies. We didn't have a TV growing up. And so kind of all of our uh, activity was was much more active and mind engaging. And, and we were homeschooled. So uh, this was a very kind of un- orthodox, not, not a structured approach to education, but education was kind of woven into everything that we did. This was before homeschooling conferences and curriculum and online support. Alex's dad, Greg, was a pioneer in the movement. More than 180,000 families went through his homeschool workshops and seminars in the 80s and 90s. Uh, and then my oldest brother, Josh, who's 13 years older than, than my twin brother and I, uh, in the late 90s, he wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which coincided with kind of the true love weights movement and kind of broader uh, you know, purity culture movement uh, in evangelical circles and just became this kind of surprise, runaway, best-selling book, sold over a million copies. So growing up, you know, virtually all of my friends were homeschooled because of my parents and they weren't allowed to date because of my brother. And <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of the influence of, of my family on, on so many people, even if it, you know, was largely just within evangelical or even, you know, smaller homeschool circles was just very obvious throughout my childhood. And, you know, I think, you know, for a lot of people that could be, you know, a very limiting or, or a, a burden. You could feel like you're kind of under the shadow of these well-known uh, family members. And, and for whatever reason, I think it was the kindness of God. Brett and I, uh, we, didn't, we didn't take it that way. I think we took it more as like mom and dad, they're normal, imperfect people. Our big brother, Josh, he's, he's a very normal, imperfect big brother. Uh, you know, if God can, can use them to, to further the work of his kingdom, then, then he could use us too. The twins enrolled at Patrick Henry College, took first place in the Moot Court Nationals, and wrote another book. They dated and married their wives and cared for their mother throughout her journey with colon cancer until she suddenly passed away. You know, she was the driving force, the glue, the, the, the rock, whatever analogy you want to use for our whole family. Found out um, in the spring that she had stage four colon cancer and she passed away on the 4th of July. So it was very quick, very sudden. Uh, she had, we assume, known something was going on for, for perhaps years and had not told anyone, not told my dad or, or any of us that something was happening. And so it was just out of the blue, you know, huge, huge loss um, and took a lot of wind out of all of our sails as a, as a family. And that's a hard thing that we didn't choose, obviously, but a hard thing that we experienced. After college, Alex headed off to Harvard Law School. He and Brett had been the first in their family to graduate from college, 
Alex was now the first to attempt graduate school. Um, it was neat to be in, in Boston and Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts. And uh, at the same time, there were, there were challenges. I, mean, I was one of the few kind of you know, vocal, identifiable evangelical Christians on campus. It was the first time I'd been in a kind of a majority non-Christian environment. So that was an adjustment. And I was also a, a new father and a husband. And, and that was unusual. Um, there, was, there were others, but, but we were a very small minority of the students at, at Harvard. And so figuring out how to balance the incredible demands academically of a, of a school like Harvard with being faithful as a husband and a father required some kind of intentional decisions, you know, kind of intentional boundary setting uh, where, you know, I basically treated law school as if it were not a nine to five, because that was not quite enough time, but, you know, as early as possible, you know, even into the wee morning hours until dinner time was kind of when I would do my work and then try to be home for dinner, do bedtime with my daughter, have time with my wife uh, every evening and to not let school just kind of spill over into every nook and cranny, which is what it would do if, if you let it. And that was required some level of discipline. Alex owned law school. He won a Sears Prize, which meant his GPA was one of the top two in his class. He worked for the Harvard Law Review, one of the most coveted positions on campus. He graduated magna cum laude and then clerked for Judge Neil Gorsuch and Justice Anthony Kennedy. In 2017, Alex was named one of Forbes magazine's 30 Under 30. And then, finally, he started actually practicing law. He knew that was going to be hard, too. The legal profession as a, as a whole, you know, it's a, it's a service industry in an increasingly connected age through technology. Uh, so you are never truly off the grid or, or off call. And uh, there's a never-ending amount of work. Uh, to do. And there's a lot of pressure and expectation, both personal. Uh, a lot of lawyers tend to, to be you know, type A overachievers who, who put a lot of pressure on themselves. Uh, and then from other attorneys, partners, and, and from clients. And so when I was coming out of law school, I actually you know, did some research, I actually took a class on the legal profession in law school, where the, the numbers in terms of depression and substance abuse and divorce and just general unhappiness for the legal profession, uh, as you might imagine, is, is just very high. And so there are kind of built in dangers. And, you know, one of the things I did to to address that was to, to go to a law firm that has a different model that, that mitigates a lot of the most draining uh, aspects of how a lot of big law firms work. But some of it is just choosing to set boundaries, even even still seeking to have some autonomy, seeking to to view my job not as the the sum total of who I am and and my worth, but as as a means to serve others, but also to to enable you know a lifestyle of of generosity that I might not otherwise be able to to do and kind of making it fit into that kind of broader vision of vocation, not just profession, but vocation has been has been important. In addition to tricky litigation cases and spending time with his family, Alex donates his free time to pro bono cases. That has been the highlight of, of my time in legal practice. I've, I've gotten to work on some really um, exciting high-profile cases, 
but the most important one was a pro bono case for a woman who was fleeing for her life from a country in South America from a drug cartel member who had threatened to, to murder her and her family. Um, had attempted to, to rape and kill her previously. And then when she testified in court against him uh, and he was released by a, a corrupt judge who we believe was bribed, he was ready to carry out on his threat. And she fled with her, her niece who she had raised uh, since she was just a young child uh, as her daughter. And you know this was kind of at the height of the family separation crisis at the border uh, when many Christians, many evangelicals, just kind of reacted appropriately with, with horror at, uh, at what was happening and sought to get involved in various ways. And as an attorney, you know, feeling like, wow, I have a unique set of, of skills and abilities to, to, to do something here. And so through some great local organizations here in the Denver area, some of which run by, by, by Christians, uh, we were able to get involved, represent her uh, in her seeking asylum in the United States. Uh, in the end, she was granted asylum, complete asylum on, it, on every ground that we put forward. And the judge said she was the most compelling and, and credible witness that he, he had ever seen. At the same time Alex was flying through a legal career, Brett fell off the grid, literally. His wife, Anna, was diagnosed with Lyme disease and developed issues with toxic mold. So that she could breathe, they left their home and all their belongings and fled to the desert, where they spent months living in a tent or a van as they tried to rebuild Anna's health. Uh, what's remarkable is that it has done that. She has substantially improved. She is dancing again. Um, they have been able to settle uh, in, in southwestern United States and actually in, in a house and, and have some sense of stability and permanence, uh, which had you know not been true for, for the last several years. And you know, Brett has, you know, throughout this time been on as primary caregiver and been forced to scramble and to seek to provide for his wife by doing things that don't require uh, a reliable internet connection because you know when you're in the middle of, of Death Valley, there's no easily accessible Wi-Fi. But now that they have a little bit more, more stability, uh, he's been able to focus more on the work that he's doing, which is really, really neat stuff. He is working with young, uh, aspiring Christian authors who want to change the world with their words, training them and seeing some really remarkable success stories come out of that program. Brett, if he'd wanted to, he, he could have gone to law school and, and done these clerkships and, and worked at a, at a law firm. And, and you know some of the things that I've been able to do, and yet instead... He's just been a faithful husband and you know, his faith and faithfulness through that trial, as well as Anna's faithfulness through her incredible suffering, are, are just a source of endless inspiration. Let's talk about 2020. It, it seemed like everybody was forced to do hard things. Either your kid was schooling at home or you lost your job or you were, you know, your friends were yelling at each other on Facebook about mask wearing or it was just... Everybody was forced into the hard things that maybe not everybody had worked that muscle for that. And we're not quite done with it either. Probably there will be some hard things as we try and come out of this. Is there encouragement that you would give or, or guidance that you would, would give the church? I think we all, as always, but maybe especially now, just need 
you know, to be able to give each other a lot of grace, maybe more than ever, you, you don't know what someone else is dealing with. You don't know what losses they've endured this past year. And we all need a lot of grace in the church and outside of it. You know, another difficulty of this past year, which is not a, a unique to 2020, but maybe exacerbated by some of the other stressors that were present in 2020 was just how, how polarized our country has become. And that's also both inside and outside the church. And, and not only, you know, polarized, but, but the, the opposition, you know, the others are often demonized. And, and that makes it very hard to give grace when, when you demonize uh, your opponent. And, you know, one of the causes of that, in, in my view, is, is the fact that we have, kind of as a culture, kind of embraced a form of civic religion where we put our hope, where we look for our salvation in elections, in policies, in politicians. And, you know, again, sadly, that's infiltrated even the church, where many people are, are trusting in princes, which is what the Bible tells us not to do. For us as a church, especially as evangelicals, I think we need to take a very close look uh, at our own hearts and our own churches and, and seek to extend grace and to return uh, to first principles and put our hope in Christ. So here's what's a little bit confusing. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but sometimes I hear people say like, well, the reason politics is so terrible is because Christians like abandon the field, like they abandon the Hollywood field and they abandon the politics because it felt so, I don't know, secular or gross or something. And now look at what, what has happened. But I don't even know if that's true because haven't there always been Christians in politics? Like, is it, is the answer then to come roaring back at politics and like take it at the edge of a sword or like what, why do we say that? I, I have reflected on this because I, I, I grew up in the, the Christian homeschool movement and there was a big, you know, part of the vision of that was the idea of the generation Joshua. And the idea of, uh, is that, you know, my parents' generation of, of Christian homeschoolers were like Moses who kind of led the children out of Egypt. So, you know, they, they fled the public school system, kind of the increasing secularization of, of culture to raise their children in the wilderness. And now, you know, as generation Joshua, we would be the ones who would kind of take back the land for Christ. And we would do it by infiltrating politics and law and Hollywood or creating an alternative that would defeat Hollywood at its own games. And, and that was, you know, there was re real serious talk of, of this. And, and the problem, you know, there are many problems with that. A lot of it goes to things we've talked about, the putting our hope in, in princes and in power. And some of it is, is viewing, you know, the United States of America itself as this kind of God's chosen people. When, when God's chosen people are all believers uh, worldwide under the new, the new covenant, under the New Testament. And so kind of viewing America as the new Israel and, and the need for us to maintain its identity as a, as a so-called Christian nation or else, you know, again, spiritual cataclysm, you know, that, that whole mentality feeds, you know, a fear-based engagement in politics and culture. And it feeds this, this felt need to, to be dominating or conquering or, or infiltrating all of these fields. And it's not that there is not a way to be salt and light as Christians. I, I, I have a vision as an attorney to be, 
salt and light within the legal world. But my hope is not ultimately to pass every law and to create a Christian nation in, in whatever, whatever that means. You know, my hope is to be faithful, to love my neighbor, and to, to be a faithful witness to Christ until he comes again, even if that means being a persecuted minority, you know, even if that means that, that ministry and faith uh, becomes more difficult for, for my daughter than it was for, for me or my parents. That is not the end of the spiritual historical story because the ultimate end is not this world, but the next. And so I do think there's a sense in which, you know, many Christians have had this mentality of engagement with politics and culture that, that drives some of the problems that we have seen disengaging from that, that whole posture is, is going to, to be necessary to really uh, return to a more biblical and, and true understanding of the Christian calling. So since we're talking about politics, I did really want to ask you, we, you know, a lot of people um, voted for President Trump for a lot of different reasons, but one of them was his promises to deliver uh, appointees to the Supreme Court, which he did. But uh, having clerked for the Supreme Court, I- I'm just wondering about the rationale that we use. I'm curious, like how important are those judicial appointments, especially at the Supreme Court? Is it really worth, and maybe it is, voting based on filling those appointments? That is an incredibly complex question, uh, very important question, but an incredibly complex question. And I don't know that I have a, a bottom line, clear answer for you, Sarah. Uh, but some thoughts. First, you know, it, it is important, but it shouldn't be so important. You know, a big part of why the Supreme Court has become uh, such a central part of our American life is because uh, it has become the final arbiter of all hot button social questions, uh, in large part because of failures of the other federal branches the executive and, and the legislative branch. And so in many people's view is, is not the, the proper role of the court. And we should be able to, as uh, a democracy, to engage on these issues and to, to reach conclusions and to live with legislative successes and failures without always having to resort to a final pronouncement from on high uh, from the Supreme Court. So that's, that's one thought. A second uh, is that you know, historically speaking, you know, especially conservative Christians have viewed the Supreme Court as as important because the goal is to overturn decisions like Roe versus Wade. Again, just speaking historically, the, the goal or the strategy of electing Republican presidents to appoint conservative justices has not <laughs> been successful. Uh, it has not produced that the desired outcomes. So there's there's no sure bet that simply appointing more justices is somehow going to lead to X, Y, or Z result. And, you know, we are far too early to say, you know, whether the, the justices appointed by former President Trump are going to achieve what justices appointed by other Republican presidents in the past did not. I will say the justices, the current makeup of the court, uh, it is a very religious liberty supportive court. There are a lot of very reliable, thoughtful votes in favor of religious liberty. And that goes even beyond traditional ideological divides. Uh, so that's, that's another observation. But the, the fact is, you know, the Supreme Court right now does make these decisions. I think it would be uh, good for, for all Christians and all Americans to go <laughs> to put more energy 
uh, into these other institutions, just because the, the court ultimately cannot heal <laughs> and resolve every issue. We, we need to do a lot of that work on a relational, local, one-on-one, even state level and constitutionalizing everything, federalizing everything, requiring a final judgment uh, from on high for everything is not a sustainable or healthy path. Legislation like the Equality Act has been hard for Christians, not only on its merits, but because of what it says about our culture's drift away from Christianity. Another difficult trend is deconstructions, which is when a Christian, often publicly on social media, dismantles the beliefs they grew up with. For some, losing faith means they reject the notion of God altogether. Others are later able to reconstruct their faith in a true and better way. But at the beginning of the deconstruction process, it's hard to tell which way the deconstructor is going to go. It can be worrisome and demoralizing to watch someone argue away what we know is the truth, especially if that person is someone we love or in such a high-profile position that we fear they may destabilize the faith of other Christians. One of the most high-profile recent deconstructions has been that of Joshua Harris, someone who is both well-known and a dearly loved brother. When someone deconstructs, it can make everybody else rethink too, right? Like, oh, so you're changing your mind on that. Should I change my mind on that? And I'm wondering if that was stronger for you because he was your brother and you looked up to him and, you know, you were walking along behind him all the time. Did it make your faith wobble? It, it, it did. You know, I think inevitably when someone you're so close to questions things or, or walks away from, from who they are and who they've been, it raises questions in, in your own mind. And I, and I say wobble not to you know, suggest some profound crisis of faith, but just to acknowledge that, yes, <laughs> you know, any, any person is going to have some of those emotions and some of those questions and doubts when something like this happens. And I'm no exception to that. I think perhaps less for me than, than for outsiders who had no context, who maybe hadn't walked with Josh through the very difficult years leading up to this time, you know, maybe there was more surprise, maybe it was more of a shock. And so it was not as much of a complete shock or surprise for me. And there was also, you know, in in the process of getting to listen and getting to ask and try to understand, you know, I think a recognition that, you know, oftentimes these decisions are not, you know, attributable to, to one specific thing or to some intellectual question or doubt that just could not be satisfactorily explained or, or resolved. We are whole persons, mind, motions, physical bodies. It all rolls together when it comes to even these big, seemingly life-altering decisions uh, and the moments that lead up to them. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, I felt a, a real sense of comfort in, in having conversations with Josh and, and understanding you know, some of the factors that, that played into it, recognizing God's kindness to me and that I very easily could have followed down the same path. Not that it would have necessarily led to the same place, but God in his kindness kind of took me off the fast track as kind of a, a minor evangelical celebrity and, and allowed me to do some real important 
personal work and growth and maturing and learning. And so there was a lot of comfort in seeing God's faithfulness in that. But that doesn't obviously negate the, the discomfort and the questions that come when someone you trust and love and look up to has those doubts. And, and I think it's hopefully, like we talked about, okay to express that and to share that and to find support within the church uh, when we have those, those questions and doubts. Josh's story isn't over, Alex said. He is uh, incredibly loved by many, including our, his family. And he still has a pastor's heart. Much of what he has kind of reacted to are, are kind of criticisms of a, at times, you know, legalistic or fear-based religion that, that kind of brings on various cultural baggage to the gospel of Christ that is not uh, really uh, clear to me in the scripture. And that critique from someone who, who actually still has a heart for the evangelical church that he has, he has left uh, is a, hopefully a message that we can, those of us still in the fold can, can really listen to. But that doesn't change the fact that it hurts or that it's you know, em- embarrassing and you know, there's the time to grieve over it. And, and all of those are, are emotions that I've personally experienced as, as, his, as his brother, as someone who loves him and looks up to him. Uh, but I think the important thing for us, you know, as a family was just to, to say, first, there's, a, there's a, a knee-jerk reaction, you know, maybe born out of pain uh, for many Christians to say, he was a wolf among sheep. He went out from us because he was never of us. And, and, and the story's not over. We don't, we don't know that uh, at this time. And so to, to avoid kind of throwing Josh into a particular theological bucket, that was one important thing for me. And the second was just to communicate my continued love for him and to listen and to try to understand. And that's an ongoing, it's an ongoing process. And there's, I have a lot to learn from listening and seeking to understand. And so that's a very healthy process, I think, for, for both of us. And, and I think, you know, more generally as a church, you're right, this is a trend. It's not the first, it won't be the last. And, you know, part of what makes it so difficult and painful is, you know, one that, that so many people have been influenced or looked up to or had their own spiritual journey marked by Josh's teaching. Uh, and that's true for me. So I'm kind of falling to both the personal family and the kind of broader Christian community that's been influenced by his teaching. To, to process that is, is really difficult. And I think some of that's just inevitable. But some of it is a symptom of kind of a celebrity culture within evangelicalism and, and in the church more broadly, where you know we do lift up skilled teachers and we do uh, treat them like celebrities. You know, I've, to a smaller degree, experienced that myself. I thankfully, you know, found that off ramp and, and got to just be another student at a small school and be a student and not the teacher for a while. But Josh never had that. He went straight from writing this best selling book at 21 to becoming the heir apparent of a mega church outside of DC to becoming the senior pastor at the age of 30 before he'd, you know, gone to college or gone to seminary. And then he was the pastor of this large, influential church that headed up this much larger network of churches that was very influential within evangelical Christianity. And he was the figurehead. And when you're the figurehead, it's not just that you feel like there's all this pressure, and I'm sure there's so much pressure uh, on him, but 
you know, it's so hard to have genuine community where you can be honest uh, about questions or doubts or struggles because to even admit it uh, is, is to, is, it's almost like a scandal within so many churches. And, and that's a, that's a sign of, of an unhealthy dynamic within our churches that, you know, the people who are, are in leadership, everyone's who's close to them is close to them because of their celebrity as opposed to out of genuine relationship. And, and there's a, a lack of ability to be honest, a lack of ability to, to question or to doubt. I just can't imagine that that helped Josh uh, when it comes to, to where, where he uh, is today. And that's, that's only one part of the story that I don't mean to suggest that's the whole explanation. There's a lot more that, that went into it. And I'm sure a lot that I don't even know. Um, but just a reminder that our, our pastors, you know, our leaders, our teachers, our authors, they're all just broken, sinful people just like us. And they need to be treated that way, both in not being elevated to a position where their failures devastate us, but also um, not elevated in that way so that they are isolated and unsupported and, and feel alone in that. That's a, something that I think as a church, we need to really think about and seek to cultivate a different culture. Creating a more gospel-centered culture in our churches is hard. So is working in politics or thinking through asylum law or living in a tent in the desert. And so is homeschooling your children through a pandemic, educating yourself on racial injustice or bringing dinner to a neighbor in need. So what gives us encouragement to do hard things? We ultimately do hard things and we have the the power to to do hard things and we have the hope that enables us to to do hard things or to, to suffer through some very difficult things because Jesus Christ has done the ultimate hard thing. You know, that he died on the cross, beating sin and death forever for our sakes. And because of that, you know, we have this uh, incredible hope. You know, we have this incredible security. We have this incredible understanding that, you know, failure is not the end. And our own failures uh, do not negate his faithfulness. As Christians, you know, the, the person and work and salvation of Christ is what ultimately grounds us in the ability to do maybe some of the hardest things, the types of hard things that someone who is not a Christian would maybe not even consider doing, the ability to to faithfully walk through suffering that uh, is hard even to wrap your mind around, the way that Christians throughout history have done, because again, of that hope we have in Christ. Christ.